Those of you still standing can be seated. If you hear people going, go ahead with them. Um, We'll tell you otherwise. Let me invite you to open your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 13. This morning our reading will begin in verse 24, continuing through verse 30. Hear the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the weeds and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest I'm gathering the weeds you root up, uh, the, the, in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's go to our God and pray that by his spirit, he would speak to us now through his word. Father, we do thank you for not leaving us to speculate what you are like, and what you require of us. But you have spoken to us clearly, vividly, by your word, revealing to us how you have interacted with your people throughout all of history, revealing even our own hearts in their lives, and revealing to us what to expect in this world and how we are to live. Father, as we consider this passage this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work and enlighten and illumine our minds and as well as open our hearts, that we may understand what you would have us to understand, that our minds might be renewed and shaped and become more and more in conformity with your mind, that we would think your thoughts after you, and therefore we would desire and do what is right, what is good what is honoring to you and delightful for us. Father, we pray to you knowing that we can pour our full capacity, our intellect into this, and we may come with great insights, but we long to hear from the voice of our Father by the power of the Spirit in whom all wisdom rests and uh, from whom wisdom is freely poured out. Bless us, Lord, that we may bless you and be a blessing to our neighbors and to the nations, as you make us more like Jesus. And it is in him that we pray. Amen. We've been looking at the parables of the kingdom for the past few weeks. These are the lessons that Jesus taught us to help us understanding what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
As we began this, I defined the kingdom uh, as, as the reign of Christ in the hearts and, and lives of God's people everywhere. That became apparent and is important definition to understand when we look at the first one, which was the parable of the treasures or the parable of the pearls, two parables in which two men who liquidated everything they had, one having a lot, one having very little, in order to possess a treasure that was worth more than they had, more than they had imagined they would have. When we understand that, we, that parable is te- teaching us to have Christ reigning in our hearts, Christ directing our lives. That is worth more than anything else in this life. It's incomparable. Nothing else even compares. And that is a challenge to us that we should rid ourselves of everything that hinders us. We should realize since nothing compares, that's what we need. And as this passage says that we liquidate everything, we, we uh, eliminate everything, we We understand that we are to rid ourselves of of sin, things that hinder us. But the harder challenge is to understand that it's also that we are to rid ourselves of even the things that seem to be good, those things that mark us, that people look at us and say, that's a good person. I know that's a good person because of these things. Things that we treasure in our own lives by which we are marked that are not worth as much as being marked by belonging to Jesus. When I say that, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do good things and there should be no good thing that anybody could say about you. But we should realize that being part of the kingdom of heaven is more about belonging to Jesus and delighting in what he has done for us and is doing for us than all of the good works that we can possibly muster. So we treasure that more than even what people think of us as being good people. The past couple of weeks, we looked at the parable of the soils, the seed, and the sower. And we looked at that in two different ways, two different aspects. One, we, we looked at that, and it reminds us of we need to be aware of how we are hearing and how we are receiving God's word, the gospel, even as believers. That our hearts are like soil, and when the gospel goes out, whether it's being preached or whether it's being sung, whether you're reading it for yourself during, your, during the week at different times, God's word is pouring out upon us and will bear good fruit. And yet, because of life, our hearts are, uh, as soils change, just like the soils in your gardens do during the winter time. What was good in the spring, what was good in the summer, becomes hardened or things get in there, and they need to be cultivated. They need to be prepared. And we, as believers, need to be aware of that and constantly preparing our own hearts, first by being aware of what the condition of our heart is, knowing that we are in need of God's grace to continue to plow up the ground of our hearts in order that the seed of the gospel, which always bears good fruit, will bear good fruit in us. But we also looked at it last week and realizing that we're also called to go and and scatter the seed. In one sense, we pick up Jesus' commission, and we scatter the seed in the world, not just to ourselves, which is what we begin with, But then we scatter the seed of the gospel throughout the world. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever God has placed you, wherever God would take you, we are responsible to be the sowers of the the seed, the pure gospel that will bear fruit. But when we go and do that, when we are faithful, when we are obedient, we encounter people, some of whom are very receptive to what we have to say, some of whom are less so, some even at times hostile. We understand from what Jesus has told us that that's 
That shouldn't be a surprise to us that people, there's a wide range of people, and that when this gospel goes out, we anticipate, we understand that where it's going to meet different kinds of soil. But what I wanted to challenge you with last week, and just as a reminder, that just because the soil is initially not receptive to the gospel, to the seed of the gospel, doesn't mean that that soil will remain the same as it was. The soil can be prepared and can be tilled, and God, by his Holy Spirit, may change the person. Our job is to continue to be faithful, faithfulness not only in declaring the truth of the gospel so that the seed is understood, but also through loving our neighbor and even loving our enemies, that God may use us as the plow to plow up the ground that will change it and make it fertile. God does the work, we may be the tools, but we cannot just look at the world saying hard soil, rocky soil, shallow soil, and when people uh, initially respond to the gospel and assume that that's the way it is, our job has been done because we told them once and move on. We continue and we engage our friends and we engage our neighbors, we engage the nations and allow God to use the gospel planted properly to bear the fruit of the harvest that God would want us to have. This morning we come to another, the second of Jesus' parables in his discourse. It's the parable of the, of the wheat and the weeds. And this is a parable that Jesus has given us that helps us wrestle with the question of why evil is so prevalent and so persistent in our world. It's a question that many people ask. It's a question that many believers ask, particularly when we start thinking about the promises of the kingdom and when we hear of the good news, how the kingdom is continuing to grow throughout the world, perhaps in places that we may not have expected to see it grow. And yet we look around our, our, our neighborhoods. We look around our own circumstances. And we do look around the world. And we see continuously, evil is not only present, it seems to flourish. Once it gets squelched in one place, it pops up in some other place, and sometimes it almost seems like it's contagious. And it causes anybody who asks questions, anybody who is paying attention, to, to wonder why. And we ask ourselves, why is this the case? Why is God allowing this? And what is it we are supposed to do about this? If we look at this particular passage, Jesus does address it through this parable, through this story, to help us to understand, and I, I think to guide us and direct us in how we should live our lives, how we should focus our, our attention and our energies. And the question about evil, what Jesus seems to be telling us, seems pretty clear in this passage, he's telling us that there is an enemy who is actively at work. Now that's a, a position that many people are skeptical about. George Barna in his 2006 uh, survey found that most people are skeptical about a living entity, an active being, who is intent on wreaking havoc, sowing evil, and causing pain, problems, discord. In his survey, he says that apparently 55% of all Americans say that Satan or the devil is not a living person, but simply a symbol of evil. In other words, people were not denying that evil exists. They see it, but they, they, they believe. Most people in our country believe that we've just created an embodiment of evil so that we can have a better understanding of it. And that's America as a whole. Interesting, 68% of Roman Catholics uh, say the devil is non-existent and only a symbol of evil. 
Some may say, well, what can you expect? Nearly half of all evangelicals, 45% of evangelicals also say that Satan doesn't actually exist. So people who claim to have a high view of Scripture, people who claim to be born again of God's Spirit, people who are involved in activities that are uh, uh, like Bible studies on a regular basis is how Barna determines his sample group and where he categorizes people. He doesn't ask them where do they want to be. He asks them primer questions. And so 45% of people who claim to believe the Bible believe that there is, that Satan does not actually exist. But the teaching of Scripture is very clear that Satan is a real person, a real entity bent on evil. And he is a wor at work in our world now he is engaged in spiritual warfare. He is causing pain. He is causing difficulty. He is causing hardship. And he is causing people to grieve. That's, scripture is very clear about that. Now, I would be remiss if I was to suggest and be heard only as saying, if there's evil, if there's problems, if you're troubled, it's all Satan actively working. While he may be active, we have other reasons, other things that cause problems. My life, the biggest problem is, is me, um, and oftentimes I probably wouldn't need Satan's help at all. I just kind of imagine him off sitting in a corner smoking, if you smoke, I'd see enough, but that's my imagination, sitting off in the corner just kind of watching, chuckling, because, you know, thinking I couldn't have messed his life up better if I did it myself. Scripture tells us our hearts are deceitful, and so we're dealing confused, reacting confused. We continue to wrestle with sin in our lives even when we've been set free from it. And so some of the problems we have in our life, some of the evil, we cause ourselves. But when we seem to come to the end of ourselves, when we begin to search for wisdom, Satan is actively at work and he is causing circumstances to which we react to. And sometimes he moves us back and we react again and, and we react in a way that is foolish. And so... We need to understand that while I'm not saying the devil made me do it is the answer for all things because we are responsible. Jesus clearly here is indicating by this parable that there is an enemy who is actively at work in the world. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. And if we're to believe Jesus, take Jesus at his word, we must understand that. That's what he's teaching his disciples. There is an enemy who is at work. And in this particular parable, Jesus is teaching us one of the primary tactics that the and that enemy engages in to cause evil in the world. And what he is telling us here is that while God, through whoever is sowing the seed, whether it's directly coming from Christ, whether it's the Spirit, whether we are out and sowing seed in the world, the seed of the gospel, while it is finding fertile soil, whenever it finds fertile soil and begins to grow and begins to prosper, the enemy comes along and also sows corrupt seed right alongside of it in order to mix and intermingle with what is good. Now, whether he's trying to diminish the harvest and limit what could come or whether he just gets a kick out of causing problems, I have no idea. Jesus doesn't go into that detail here. could be a mixture of both. But we know that Jesus is saying that the enemy is at work and what he is doing is he is mixing a corrupt seed, a seed that does not produce wheat, into the harvest, same field, to be there with the wheat. Now, some of the translations that you have or translations that you will read that are faithful when, in the place where it talks about weed, it'll say, it'll say it's a tear. 
And in my own studies, I found that a tare is a particular kind of weed that is apparently the same color, the same texture, and almost indistinguishable from wheat in every way. The only difference is that at full maturity is that wheat will produce grain and the tare does not. But one is a part of a crop, part of a harvest, and the other is, is simply a weed uh, that, that grows up. And yet it's there and it's indistinguishable. New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg, as he was uh, writing about this particular passage in his commentary on Matthew's Gospel, he, he writes this. At an agricultural level, the story is not very realistic. In other words, what he's saying in overall terrorism in the Middle East, even at this time, one of the primary tactics that they engage in is not when you plant a garden, they come in at night and put little seeds in there. And they're not trying to mess up your garden. Now, I don't know what your garden looks like. I've already confessed that I'm not a gardener. I'm not sure that our neighbors in my house aren't doing this anyway, but because our garden has weeds. But just don't tell Carolyn I said that. Anyway, um, and so what he's saying is, look, this is not an agricultural thing. Overall, it, this kind of sabotage didn't happen often, but then he says, oh, sabotage like this did occasionally occur. So apparently some people have lousy neighbors. I, and so he's saying, but the point is not about gardening. The meaning in this parable in reality is primarily at a spiritual level. In other words, it's not the tactic specifically, but Jesus is teaching us something that we need to know about ourselves, we need to know about spiritual warfare, we need to know how we are to live. We need to know something about God as well, all of which are revealed in this particular parable. So the question is, what is it that we are learning in this parable? What is it that we're being taught here that are the spiritual insights that we need to understand that will shape our hearts, shape our lives, and then shape our, our behaviors. I think the first one, as I, I look at this, is, is an important one for us to understand, is we need to know that God's people are sometimes hard to distinguish from God's enemies, or hard to distinguish from people who don't belong to God. And that may be somewhat shocking, but that's important for us to understand. A Christian is not necessarily distinguished by his behavior as being a better person than the person who is not a Christian. That's not the distinguishing factor, mark, of a Christian. The Mormon down the street may very well be a better husband and father than I am. The Muslim down the street from you may be a much better neighbor than you are. Our behavior is not what primarily marks us as being Christians. Our being better than somebody else or better than other religions or other people, other that's not what distinguishes, that's not what marks us as being a Christian. What marks us as Christian is the fact that we are marked by the blood of Christ. That is evident by faith in trusting what Jesus has done and who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That we know that we are not strong in ourselves. We know that we are flawed. We know that we were at one time enemies of God. And God in his great love redeemed us by sending his own son who willingly came and took upon himself our sin, our misery, took the full weight of punishment of God's wrath upon himself and then rose again to set us free. That's what marks the Christian, that faith, that belief that we are covered by the blood of Christ. Good deeds, good behavior, progress that we may make in this life 
they are consistent with what God is doing in the lives of his believers, but they are not the distinguishing mark. During the process of getting to full maturity, we may be indistinguishable from others. We need to understand that so that, one, we don't get frustrated when we see weaknesses in ourselves or when we see other people behaving in ways that don't belong to our camp and think, I need to top that. That's not the emphasis of the Christian life. That's not the emphasis of the gospel. The primary part of the gospel is for us to believe what has been given to us and then in believing and reacting and responding and relating to God, He bears fruit in us. And when we come to maturity, we will bear the fruit of the gospel. We will bear the fruit of godliness. While those who do not belong to God will not. That's the distinguishing mark, and we need to be clear about that. And also along with that is we need to be clear not only so that we are comforted, but we need to be clear so that we can encourage one another with the true and pure seed of the gospel and not substitute something else such as behaviorism or moralism in its place. It's not that the good deeds are wrong. It's not that they're bad. We just need to know what it is that distinguishes us as Christians so that we may grow rather than pretending, rather than looking for something else. That's one of the primary spiritual lessons that we need to understand from this passage is that God's people are sometimes difficult to distinguish from people who are not God's people, even from God's enemies. But we also need to be comforted in knowing that in the end, we, if we belong to God, we will bear fruit. I think another lesson that we need to understand, and I'll go back to Craig Blumberg because I can't say it better than he did. But a second thing I would point out to you in terms of the spiritual lessons are, is this. Blumberg says, just as wheat and weeds are also superficially similar, and if sown too closely together are too intermingled in their root system to be pulled out separately, God's people can be too interconnected with the weeds in society for anyone to try to purify the world from evil without hurting those who are good. Now, that's pretty profound and, and pretty um, lofty statement. In other words, is there's a lot of Christians who are focusing their life on trying to eradicate evil in the world. But what this passage is saying is we probably won't eradicate it in this life. And without hurting those who belong to God, without creating problems. Now what do we do? We'll get back to that in a moment. Because the first thing that we learn overarching is that there is an enemy that is in the world and he is active in the world. I also, before I try to throw out a prescription of how we should live and how we should respond, I want to see something else. I want to make sure that we all see something else that is central here uh, in light of the fact that there is evil in the world and that there is an, an entity, there is a person sowing evil. Both of those are, are serious issues. But then when I look at this particular parable, knowing that there is evil and there is an enemy, I also see this very clearly, that God doesn't seem to be overly concerned. You know, if you look at this parable, here's a question for you. Do, you. do you see any sense or get any sense that the owner of this field is in the least bit disturbed or worried about what's going to happen? Not at all. And the owner of the field is a picture of God 
And despite the fact that there is evil in the world and there is one who opposes his purpose, God's not worried about it. In fact, if you look at the owner, you see that he's got a plan and he's confident that his plan's going to work. He's got it all under control. And so he's confident. He is relaxed. As I think of this aspect of who God is, I couldn't help but thinking of Psalm 2, one of my favorite psalms, because I think it draws out and it builds upon this, this understanding of who God is. In Psalm 2, some of you are familiar with it, but let me just read it. Here's the condition that kind of relates to this at the very beginning, and, and the psalmist writes the, asks this question, why do the nations conspire and pl people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. In other words, it's a picture of people that are gathered together, leaders, rulers, anybody who's gathered together and saying, let's figure a way and we're going to dethrone God. I don't want to be under God's control. I don't want to be under his, his direction. Let's come up with something else. We're just going to ignore God, rid God, and just move on our own way. And people are conspiring all over. All you need to do is pick up a newspaper, turn on the news channels, and you see evidences of this all around us. It happens. It continues to happen today. So how, what is God's response? Similar to the landowner in this parable, the psalmist expresses it this way. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath and saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I consider this picture of God. I'm not unaware that there's evil in the world. God's not unaware that there's evil in the world. God's not worried about it. But when God is facing people who are conspiring for evil to dethrone God, God's response is he just laughs at them. They're foolish. And then what really makes me feel better about myself, maybe reveals certain spiritual gifts, God begins to make fun of them and mock them. So I would have never known that was godliness coming out of me. That's a gift, I guess. But... Uh, um, Except I probably have some other issues that maybe I shouldn't engage in it, but you know, it's uh, um, this is God's response to the people who are trying to undercut his plan. People who are conspiring to do evil. He, he doesn't think they're funny. He thinks that they're amusingly pathetic. He doesn't lose control. He's not overly concerned. But I also want you to hear when I say that God is not overly concerned. I don't want you to hear that I'm saying God doesn't care because God clearly cares. And he clearly cares in this passage as well. The, the, the parable reveals it very clearly. The servants come up to the landowner who re represents God and they say, this is what's happened. Should we go and pull up all of these weeds? Landowner, the Lord just says, nah, I have another plan. Don't worry about it right now. That's, that's not my, my plan. There'll, there'll be a time for all of that. We need to understand the Lord does have a plan. We might call it his plan of salvation because he has a plan that he's been working out since before the foundations of the earth. And there's nothing, no matter what has happened, no matter what we may think, there is nothing that has ever hindered his plan. His plan continues to unfold. 
Theologically, it's known as the immutability of God. Immutability, theologically defined, says God has a plan and nothing can stop God's plan. If immutability is difficult to, uh, word to remember, uh, for those of you that are not theological junkies, I like to describe it this way, you can't push the mute button on God. You can try to silence him, you can try to stop him, you can try whatever, but you can't do it. You can't mute God. That's what immutability means. And so here in this parable, we see God represented by the landowner when the servant said, look, should we go do this? Trying to be faithful, trying to be diligent, trying to be wise. Uh, God's response, or the, the, uh, the landowner's response is, not right now. I have, I have another plan. And, and one of the things that's important for you to take from this is when your world seems out of joint, whether it's because you are the recipient of evil deeds, evil actions, or whether things are just discouraging and depressing because you see evil and things are the way, they're, they're not the way they should be around the world, and, and, it, and it causes you to become frustrated. It's important for us to remember this about God, that God is in control. When people are trying to do evil things, the Lord is not concerned about them and as if this is a problem to be dealt with. He just laughs at the futility of their plan. And he's making fun of those people, thinking that they're wise, cracking jokes at their expense about their evil and their own stupidity. And he wants us to use this parable to shape our minds, to give us comfort even in our circumstances, that God is able to do that and God does that because he is in control. No one can take it from him. It doesn't resolve our problem immediately, but it does give us reason for hope and for comfort. So we look at this passage and we see, okay, one, there is evil in the world because there's an entity that is trying to work evil. We sometimes cooperate even unwittingly. And God's not worried and not, and not concerned uh, about that. He's working out his plan. So now the question is, what should our response be to evil in the world? And I have to confess that I tend to look at this passage and I sympathize with the workers. I see evil and my, my instinct is to say, let's just get rid of it. The Barney Fife in me that just wants to just nip it in the bud, uh, just, just get rid of it. And the Lord says, that's not what I would have you to do. And as I mentioned a moment ago, it's important for us to consider because there are Christians, maybe some of us here, who are so bent on eradicating evil. That's the, that's the focus of their life. They want to eradicate evil, which is noble, but not where the Lord is directing us here. They spend all their life in focus on awareness of evil, trying to eradicate evil, but they have no joy and may be stunted in their own growth in the process. I think that when we look at what the Master gives us the plan here, the Lord sends us in another direction. He does not say that getting rid of evil is, is not appropriate, that we should never do that. But he focuses our attention somewhere else. It seems to me that the Lord is telling us that the priority of our lives and the priority of our ministry ought to be focused on building up the wheat, strengthening those who belong to God, those who have the good seed of the gospel that is planted in their soil. We encourage and strengthen one another. We preach the gospel to ourselves as hearers of the word, and, and we are built up in grace, and we are built up in faith, and we grow stronger and stronger and stronger. That's not to say that there is no place for 
ministries uh, that are engaging issues of social justice, that we should not uh, uh, deal with issues of, of evil in our lives. I'm not saying that at all. That is a call. All Scripture needs to be interpreted in light of other Scripture, and it's very clear that God's people sometimes are corrected for not caring, even as we confessed earlier, about injustices and evil that takes place in the world, and they have done nothing about it. What I'm saying is that cannot be the focus of our lives. That's a byproduct of our lives being lived out and the calling that God places on us. We need to grow in our own strength. We need to grow in grace. We need to grow in full, to full maturity in Christ first and foremost. The byproduct of that may be to eliminate evil or minimize evil around you. But the focus needs to be growing in grace rather than assuming that if you can eliminate all the evil in the world that somehow now we have fertile soil. God through this parable says, look, this is just the way it is and it's going to be this way through until Jesus comes back, until there is a harvest. It is irritating, it is unpleasant, it is frustrating, and it is sad. But that's not our primary concern. Primary concern is that we, God's people, grow in His grace and then we will be used. Grow and allow God to produce His fruit in you. And that happens by growing stronger through discipleship. That happens by, through evangelism as, the, as the, the, the seed is spread further and wider, that the harvest becomes greater and there are more. That's our primary focus. Now, through evangelism, we will encounter evil, and that's where we deal with it. So again, it's not to say we don't deal with those things as unimportant. I'll never say that. I'm saying don't put that ahead of our own spiritual growth, our own need, and allowing the gospel to nurture us and nourish us. I think that's clearly what Jesus is saying in this passage. It takes patience, and it takes faith, but faith needs to be renewed and needs to be strengthened. Let me just conclude with this. There's another New Testament scholar, Michael Green, who makes a point that we need to understand that is worthy to, to consider as we leave here. Michael Green says this, and the excitement of the kingdom's invasion, in other words, when we talk about in other parables where the kingdom is advancing, that's fun stuff to talk about. And the kingdom is advancing both in the world and in your own heart. That's exciting. We get in the excitement of the kingdom's invasion it would be all too easy to become impatient. Why doesn't society change? This parable speaks of a silent revolution. It speaks of the different origins and different lifestyles of members of the community. It speaks of their ultimate separateness and the final vindications of God's purposes. Folks, I'm going to tell you what we already know, but it's too easily forget. God is in control. He is working out his purpose. If you are in Christ, you are the beneficiary of his grace, his mercy, and his love has been poured out on you, and you now become a vessel to continue to share, uh, to share that. We don't need to take control from God. God is at work. Let's trust in him. May God in his grace grant us the faith and the patience to trust in him, that by his power and through our faithfulness, his kingdom will be built up. Let me pray. Father, as we come, we do thank you for this word that you've given to us, this particular parable, uh, that reminds us that as those who belong to you, we never move beyond trusting you. We never move beyond your wisdom. We are saddened at the evil that is in the world, and we are chagrined at the evil that we find that continues uh, to pop up in our own hearts from time to time. 
But Lord, we are delighted to be reminded that you are not only not surprised, uh, you are not worried because you already have a plan that will eradicate all of this in our lives and from this world. Father, I pray that we then, knowing that you, who is in control of all things, has this under control, we can turn our attention to doing what you would have us to do, which is to encourage one another and build one another up in grace until we all reach full maturity in Christ Jesus. Father, this is the plan that you have laid out. This is your desire for us. So as I pray this, I pray this with great hope and expectation. But I also pray that you would continually remind us as the body, the part that we play, to encourage each other, to nurture one another by preaching the gospel to each other as well as to ourselves. Father, inspire us, instruct us, and direct us that you may be glorified, that we may have great joy in you and in your direction. I pray this in the name of Christ.